Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Daryl L. Bach, and he just published a very interesting book that I read, published 2020. The title of the book is Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse, Pluralistic World. And he is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, or DTS. He has also earned recognition as a Humboldt scholar at Tübingen University in Germany and is the author of over 40 books, including well-regarded commentaries on Luke and Acts and studies of the historical Jesus and work in cultural engagement as host of the seminary's table podcasts. He was president of the Evangelical Theological Society from 2000 to 2001, writes for the Christianity Today's Places and Space series, and serves on the boards of Wheaton College, Chosen People Ministries, the Institute for Global Engagement and Christians in Public Service. Uh, he has been a New York Times bestselling author in nonfiction and is Elder Emeritus at Trinity Fellowship Church in Dallas. And some of the titles of his books, more the more recent one that just came out, I believe, is Virtual Reality Church, Pitfalls and Possibilities, or how to think biblically about church in your pajamas, VR baptisms, Jesus <laughs> avatars, and whatever else is coming next, published 2021. Also, Who is Jesus Linking the Historical Jesus with the Christ of Faith, published 2012. To the Jew First, the Case for Jewish Evangelism in Scripture and History, 2008. The Missing Gospels, Unearthing the Truth Behind Alternative Christianities, 2007. And Breaking the Da Vinci Code, Answers to the Questions Everybody's Asking, 2004. And the, the first book that I could find that he published is Blasphemy and Exaltation in Judaism and the Final Examination of Jesus, a Philological Historical Study of the Key Jewish Themes Impacting Mark, published in 1998. But again, we're going to talk about this book, very timely book, titled Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse Pluralistic World. So, Dr. Bach, are you there? I am here, and it's good to hear your voice, and thanks for having me. Great, great. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have known of you... I mean, you have a very lengthy background. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write this book, Cultural Intelligence? Well, um, I've been involved as executive director for cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Seminary, basically for the last 10 years. But then in the 10 years before that, actually longer than that, I was doing a lot of interviews for uh, various media outlets related to things tied to Christianity. So I've always had an interest in how to translate the faith in the communication of the faith to our larger world. And I decided to write this book because I'm actually convinced that the way in which we've engaged the culture has been counterproductive all across the board, both for the church and for the world. Um, and, uh, and so I did a look at how the Bible is about engagement, um, wrote a chapter that dealt with those passages, six key passages that deal with that theme to try and suggest there's another way to do this and because we've done it poorly and actually off target, we've gotten ourselves into trouble. And so it's a corrective book in some ways, as well as an instructive book, as an appeal to have a different style of engagement in the midst of a battle that's very real, but where the enemy has been misplaced in that process, we've actually done ourselves damage rather than help. And it's really, this book is tailored to a very modern kind of current perspective. Can you talk about some of the things, the conflict and cultural shifts that this book is placed within within the book? Well, one of the things that the church has been coping with, at least in the West, has been the significant loss of influence 
that the church had and the way in which our um, culture is so rapidly changing all around us with all the challenges that are associated with that. And being able to cope with that is part of the goal of the book. It's also um, wrestling with how you have conversations with people who are coming from very different places and very different worldviews than you possess. So that combination is actually very important to deal with and to be able to understand its dynamics. Uh, because one of the challenges has been this this movement that is taken that is taken on in which uh, the opening up of our world technologically in terms of communication and information has led us to a plethora of options and choices that people have that they embrace in the larger culture that uh, represents a pressure and a challenge on the church to deal with. Right. And you actually kind of mentioned that it's almost like we're not dealing with culture. We're dealing with cultures, right? So Correct. Can you talk a little bit about like those different things that are happening now that may not be as common in 100 years ago or 50 years ago? Well, the several features. I mean, one is I say we're a bigger world and a smaller world simultaneously. And the point is we're more tightly connected through technology. We're very, very aware of what goes on globally instantly in a way that certainly wasn't a case 50 years ago. And so there are more of us. And there are also more options in, on the table that people are exposed to, even directly exposed to in their relationships than used to be, et cetera. And we're more tightly connected. We have this plethora of information coming at us from all directions, from all points of the world. The reason I say cultures is think of culture, our interaction with cultures as like plate tectonics. You know, when you think uh, about uh, geology, each continent lays on a plate tectonic and it rubs together, rub against each other. That builds pressure. When the pressure builds up enough, you get an earthquake. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with is, is negotiating this variety of plate tectonics that surround us in life. This would be true of anybody. And, uh, and coping with that variety and simultaneous presence all at the same time. Right. And so you're, you talk kind of like being more astute in this kind of cultural environment. Can you talk about the, your, the, you talk about the six key texts you think that the Bible has or New Testament has in regards to how to be more sensitive to cultural issues? Well, here's the first one. And it's in some ways, uh, in many ways, the most important one. It's Ephesians 2, 10 to 18, in which the key verse is Ephesians 6, 12, which says that our battle is not, 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 that's emphatic, against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. And actually, if you think about the Great Commission and people outside the church, they're actually the goal for people in the church. So not only is it a misdirected effort, if we're not careful, it can actually be severely misdirected. And that's a problem. Now, our battle is a spiritual one. It's against cosmic forces is what the passage says. And here's the trick in that. Cosmic forces, of course, are spiritual forces, spiritual hostile forces, if you will, to humanity. But a lot of humanity doesn't even recognize they exist. So they're being attacked at a spiritual level in a way that the, those forces are incognito. And not only are they incognito, they're often not recognized as even being present. So you're dealing with someone who's been, you're dealing with people who are trapped in this in this hostile spiritual environment, but they don't even know they're in danger. They're not even aware of the problem. 
Okay, Christians are aware of the problem, but others are not aware of the problem. But it makes all the difference in the world whether I see the person disagreeing with me across from the desk as an enemy to be crushed or a person to be defeated versus a person to be, if you will, rescued or at least invited into a different kind of space. So that tonal difference is really huge in thinking through cultural engagement. That's the first passage and that's the key passage in many ways. Right. And that's a very well-known passage uh, in Christianity. What are the other ones that you think are important to address? Well, let, let me add one more feature to the Ephesians passage. It's important. When, Ephesians passage also mentions the armor that we have that makes us in the midst of that environment. And that armor is not ideology. It's not our circumstances or our situation. It's things like faith, salvation, prayer, the spirit, the word of God, in order to take spiritual resources to fight a spiritual battle. And so that's an important thing to be aware of in the next in the in the context of this uh, confrontation. The second passage is in First Peter chapter three. It's the key verses are verses fifteen and sixteen, but the context is important. This is a passage that says, "But be prepared to set Christ apart in your heart. Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Set Christ apart in your heart, and do so." And then it says, "With courtesy and respect, or with meekness and." fear, fear in the sense of respect. So the idea is whenever I engage, I not only have a content that I'm defending, and that's characterized as hope, which I think is an interesting summary word, because we think we're defending ideas. We're defending much more than that. We're defending the, an orientation to life that has hope wrapped up in it because of what the gospel is about. And we're supposed to do it with a certain tone, that is with meekness, that's actually what courtesy means, meekness, a form of humility, and respect. And that's always to be the case. The next passage that's important is Colossians uh, 4, uh, 5 and 6, which says, if you give an opportunity to outsiders, let your speech always, 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 that's emphatic, be seasoned with, with salt. And the, idea, and the idea is you communicate, making the most of every opportunity, your speech is to always be gracious. Okay. So that, so that always is kind of this huge temporal technical term that means, and this is really hard definition all the time. So, uh, you know, so that's 24, seven, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, 365 days a year, 366 in leap years. You don't get to take a day off every four years. It's always to be the case. The fourth passage is uh, Colossians 6.10, which says, do good to all people, especially people of faith. This has to do with not just how we speak to people, but how we actually interact with them. Our, so our goal is to do good both inside and outside the house of God. And a lot of people, when they think about passage, will say, well, I can treat believers this way, but I don't have to worry about how I treat people outside the faith. This passage uh, disabuses you of that idea. It's supposed to treat everyone the same way. It's just supposed to especially happen among the people of God. The next passage is a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which talks about our being ambassadors for Christ, where we plead with you, be reconciled to God. So not only is there a message and a tone about reconciliation, but there that, that message comes with the tone of pleading, of invitation, that kind of thing. There's challenge in the gospel. When you offer the gospel, it's a challenge between invitation and challenge because the faith challenges people in the way they live. But how do you balance those two things and how do you do it well? And how do you invite people into that space? And how does your life, this is part of the spiritual battle, living out your faith, invite people into that space. That's the 
fifth passage. And then the last passage is a passage no one ever appeals to in this area. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And it talks about living in such a way that you live above the disputes and that perhaps in the midst of the way in which you engage, God will um, free someone from the grips of the devil. We're back to where we started. Um, and perhaps they might repent and come to faith. So, I mean, that those are all so important. It's like sometimes when people are sharing the gospel or talking to other people, shrill, overbearing, there's so there's a lot. You can see that sometimes within Christianity and when Christians talk to other people, what is the lesson of Paul? You know, what, what are the lessons of him and his? I mean, you like in our present culture actually to 2000 years ago. Can you talk about that in Paul's environment, uh, evangelism within that environment? Yeah, I, th I argue that the speech on Mars Hill is really a snapshot of the way to do this. And what you see is him, on the one hand, making an effort to build a bridge to his audience and come at them from where they're coming from, and yet at the same time offer an honest critique of where they are. But he does it in steps. And so he opens a speech. He's walked through the city of Athens. This is in Acts 17. He's seen all the idols. Okay, it says his spirit is provoked by the idols that he saw, which meant his blood pressure changed. Okay, he wasn't happy with what he was seeing. He was worked up. If you want to know what he thinks of that culture, all you have to do is Romans 1. Okay, he looks at the culture around him, the idolatrous culture that's around him, and he, he engages in what I call yuckology. Okay, it's the study of a culture that's a mess. And, and he's articulating that very strongly in that passage. Yet despite all those feelings and despite that awareness, he begins his message at Mars Hill saying this, uh, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious in every respect. So what he's saying is, I see that you're a pious people. I see that you're interested in piety and spirituality. So let's talk about it. That's his way in. It's, it's connecting. It's soft. Okay, he uses a word that can have a double meaning that can mean religious or superstitious, but he's setting it up in a positive way initially. And then he goes on and he offers critique. And the critique that he offers starts from where they are coming from versus imposing his theology and his faith on them because he talks about talking about their idolatry. And he says, do you really think that um, the world is run by a plethora of gods or that you can contain the creator of the universe, et cetera. And he puts what I like to call a rock in their shoe. Okay. A, a rock in the shoe. You know, we all get a rock in our shoe. It's irritating and we shake it around and we try and get the rock to a place in our arch where we're not walking on it. When we walk, and eventually we give up, we take off the shoe and we put the rock out of the shoe. So putting a rock in their shoe is giving someone pause, getting them to think about where the choices that they've made in their lives is taking them and getting to think about that. And so that's what he does in the beginning of the speech. And then towards the end, he begins to turn towards the gospel and talk about the resurrection. But he's only done it after he's, relay, he's laid a relational connection with them at the start and communicated a level of respect that says, I know you're in the space of spirituality, so let's talk about spirituality and let's get serious about it. Um, and he goes in that direction. So I think there are lessons from Paul. He actually submerges his, uh, how can I say, his blood pressure reaction to the idols as in the midst of talking to people who worship idols. Right. And I mean, still very soft for somebody who was persecuted and had very difficult challenges. Uh, he doesn't come in, you know, ravening or uh, overly aggressive. And I think you're right. If you read Romans 1, 
you get the background of where he's at and looking at all this culture. But I think you that's still important to today's culture where the Christian influence isn't predominant anymore. That's exactly right. In fact, I like to make the point, and sometimes I'll read the passage when I talk about this. When I read this passage, I'm pretty sure that Paul is watching what for us is our 10 o'clock evening news. You know, it sounds like, oh, he just he just watched the 10 o'clock report on Channel 5, you know? And, uh, and so you get that feel of the background. In one sense, with all the changes that the world has undergone, at its core human level, it hasn't changed very much. And so that's important uh, to appreciate about the nature of our interaction as well. And that was the, that that speech to the Athenians is known as the Areopagitica. Is that correct? Areopagus speech. Areopagus speech. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And so he's there. And uh, what is it? What kind of things did you think he did as really the the great evangelist of Christianity to build bridges with these? Roman Greco world in uh, all throughout Asia Minor and Mediterranean. Well, the, main, the main thing that he did is that even though he walked into this space, even though they walked into this space, you know, theologically erroneously, if I can say it that way, he recognized their presence and interest in the space. So, so that's a, actually a very good first start. We actually have a greater challenge in our modern world because some people don't even recognize that there are transcendent forces and realities to deal with in life today. So we sometimes have to start from an even a more basic place. But if you ask the question in the New Testament, where did they start with people who knew absolutely nothing about the Bible and the content of the Bible? They started with the idea that there's a personal God who seeks a relationship with you and to whom you, to whom you are accountable because he is your creator. And that's exactly where Paul starts with this group. And he tries to take them through what the implications of that is and and then to talk about the way in which that God speaks to us has revealed himself, etc. And that eventually takes him to the gospel in Jesus. And then once he mentions resurrection, resurrection is a category they did not have a is an idea they did not have a category really for. So that kind of stops the speech in its tracks. This is one of several speeches in Acts, by the way, where the speaker never gets to the punchline. Okay, he doesn't get to the finish. The organ never plays at the end of the message because uh, he never gets that far. And uh, there's something that comes up that pops up that stops the progression of the message. But you can tell where the message is going by where where it was interrupted, because he's just talked about Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead, and he's talking about the idea that there's a resurrection. And so you can see, you know, you can. it isn't hard to figure out what would the next step have been if you've been able to continue the speech. There's another thing about this passage that's important. Some people challenge it and say, Paul tried this, but he didn't do it very often because it was unsuccessful. That's not true. At the end of the passage, it says, it names a couple of people who came to faith, and it notes others did as well. And this speech also is a longer version of an earlier approach, uh, earlier speech that took the same approach in Acts 14. So he did this multiple times. This was the way he interacted with people who had no background or knowledge of the Bible. And this was the way in he started with the idea that God has made you for a relationship with him. Yeah, really fascinating. And then he uh, involves the invokes the unknown God uh, that, that he's explaining God's nature. That's right. He's filling in a blank. He's basically right. saying, "Let you have a blank in here that you're aware of. Let me fill in that blank." Notice how res how respectful and how he eases into the topic. I mean, that's the 
that's the interesting thing about the way that speech unfolds. And so all of so many of his uh, missives are to the Greek world, right? Thessalonians, the things that we have today, Ephesians. So you can tell that he's using the same approach. It seems like he's using that same approach probably in other things. What do you think that hit the, when he's planting that seed or putting that pebble under a shoe, isn't that his intent is to do that and not try to kind of browbeat his audiences? or is Well, he's trying to get it to dawn on them why a movement towards the gospel makes sense. So he isn't, so he isn't shoving it down their throat or browbeat, as you said. No, he's trying to get them to grasp the significance of what it is that's being considered and what it is that's being talked about. And he lets them come a, a step at a time. In, in many ways. He doesn't try and dump the whole truck on them all at once. So uh, I think that's an important thing uh, to see and realize as well. It's, you know, it, it's interesting. This is actually, you know, the book of Acts is the only place in the New Testament where we actually see a message to unbelievers. You know, all the epistles are written to believing communities about issues primarily that believers have within the church or a discussion about how believers interact with those outside the church. But we don't actually see a direct address of how unbelievers were addressed, except in the book of Acts. So these passages that we get in Acts 17 and Acts 14, these little glimpses that we get, are the only places we actually see um, an attempt to address an outside audience that knows nothing about the Bible with what it is that the gospel has to offer. And so the, he has to have be kind of astute in this kind of cultural intelligence to, to apply it to this different things. And you talk about con conversations in that context. Can you expand more on that? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time talking about difficult conversations, and I have a chapter that is literally focused on that. And I can't tell you how many times I've given this talk uh, in the in the lead up to this book, and since I've written it, and and the way in which it's received, but there are all conversations, all difficult, meaningful conversations operate at three levels simultaneously. I call it triphonics. Okay. It's like quadraphonic sound or stereo, stereo, two speakers, quadraphonic sound, four speakers. Triphonics is three, if you will, um, levels of interaction that are happening in any given conversation that you have. There's what you're talking about. There's the topic. Okay, most people stay focused on that and think that when they have a conversation, that's all that's going on. We're talking about the topic. The second layer are the lenses with which you see what is around you. Okay, so what you take, what you see on the outside in and how you process that and how you receive that. And the second layer is very easy to, to illustrate. All I have to do is say CNN or Fox. Okay, and then the third layer is how your identity is wrapped up in that conversation. What's at stake for you and how you see yourself in the midst of this conversation that you're having. Every conversation is interacting on those three levels. And the topic itself is usually the frosting on cake. It's actually not what's really going on in the dynamics of the conversation. Appreciating that about a conversation helps you to have better conversations. Um, it's often uh, the way I like to illustrate it. When a husband and a wife are fighting over something, let's say happens in the kitchen, um, they're not really fighting about what happened in the kitchen. They're fighting about other dynamics between them that are triggered by what happened in the kitchen. And so um, th that's how conversations work as well. And to realize that helps you to deal with them. And then I discuss five things that we do that undercut conversations and keep them from being profitable. 
in many cases, keep them from being a conversation at all. They turn into something else, usually a debate or maybe even a fight or, you know, something like that. And then five things we can do to advance conversations and help them to move along. And I mean, those are so important because those it's the subtle, maybe not even in a formal environment, but the subtle exchange between people and their ideas that really can be sometimes more important than somebody going to, you know, somebody who's not a Christian going to a minister or going to listen to somebody from a pulpit. So yeah, what, exactly right. And I mean, that's really kind of like the goal. So what is, uh, what do you think happens? What with these kind of type of issues that come up in conversations with people about the faith? Well, what happens, of course, is that we process them and respond to them in different ways when there's disagreement. I tell people when you're having a conversation, if you're seeking to have a conversation, that the most important thing to do is to turn is to mute. Notice I didn't say turn off. Mute your doctrinal meter. Okay. Your initial response is, I heard that. I don't agree with it. So I'm going to rebut it. That's your initial response. Put that on mute. Okay. What you want to do instead is ask a series of questions that will get a spiritual GPS reading on someone, which means you're asking a lot, where does that come from? What motivates you to say that? That kind of thing. You're not dealing with the rightness or wrongness of what the person is saying. You're trying to understand what is motivating them to say what they say. You're trying to penetrate down to that lens level, if you will, or even down to that identity level, if you can get down there, that kind of thing, to get a sense of where they're coming from. In that initial phase, it's one thing to understand someone and where they're coming from in their conversation. It's another thing to assess that content. And we run to assessment so fast that in the process, we also plow through the relationship if we're not careful. And so what you want to do is step back enough and make an effort to connect with the person, because that's the other thing that you're doing when you get a spiritual GPS reading on someone. You're saying, I care enough about you to try and understand where you're coming from first. And you go through that process and that process of intense listening that that requires. Sometimes it may mean, well, let me try and say this in a different way to see if I'm understanding what you're saying to me. And the moment you get a yes from them, you've made a connection with them, okay, at a relational level. You haven't agreed with them. You've just determined that I actually do understand what you're trying to say to me. And now you put yourself in a better position when you move towards assessment with one another to be there. You've also opened up the door for them to do the same with you in return. Okay? Right. So all that opens up avenues that will help the conversations that you have as you engage with someone who's thinking very differently than you are. And you do you kind of see kind of intelligent cultural engagement as an additional means to teach scripture, correct? Yeah, it can be an additional means to teach scripture. It can be it can be an additional means to actually understand some of the complexities of what we debate in our world. It may help you see an angle on a topic that otherwise you might not have been aware of or considered. You know, when I think about the majority minority space that we're currently so difficultly entwined in the midst of almost all the rules that I have about breakdown in conversations are consistently applied in that conversation. And so we don't get anywhere. Uh, and my hope is in, in people reflecting on the types of things that I'm saying, that they become better and legitimate conversation partners, even in the midst of having things they may want to communicate and have you wrestle with, how do I do this more effectively than it's tended to happen in the past? Right. And wouldn't you, would you agree that like this time in history is really, like you said, maybe at the introduction with the amount of information, 
where Christians probably have to be as a culturally astute, more astute than they have ever been, considering how this diversity of ideas and ideologies that's just uh, really everywhere around the world and accessible. Would you agree with that? Yeah. When I mean, when I think about when I grew up, which came before there was ever such a thing as a satellite. Okay. So I'm really old. Um, uh, you know, um, the, the views that you would have encountered in our time, other than in a book, would have probably been limited to uh, Western religions, various denominations, that kind of thing. Okay, very limited. I mean, I would have known that there was a Buddhism or a Hinduism or whatever, but the chances of my being a Buddhist or a Hindi person was was not very great. Okay, my kids went to school with people of various backgrounds because of the way people have moved around, the way in which information has opened up, the way in which Eastern religion has shown up on our shores as a result, all that kind of thing. So the options are just endless. And the part of that is dislocating. When you get all that information bombarding you all the time, there's an element of it that's dislocating. And for a Christian to be have some awareness of that is actually a huge challenge. But it's part of, of what we need uh, not so much to have those other views right or something like that, but just to be connected with where different people are coming from who you encounter and have some awareness of what is driving them as people. So out of a, a literal uh, and legitimate, I would say, pastoral or personal concern for people, it's important that Christians have um, some awareness of some of this. And, uh, of course, our center has been dedicated to trying to provide those kinds of resources for people to help them engage in those kinds of conversations. So we've done series on things like Eastern religion, et cetera, where someone can get a, a quick uh, acquaintance with um, the variety of Eastern religions that exist and that kind of thing. Right. And I mean, that's it right now. Like you can cross, come across Sikhs, you can come across Hindus, so many in the States right now that being culturally astute to some of these different ideologies. I mean, some of these people will be very sensitive to the gospel and some may be, may be different. Uh, maybe and, and some of them have some of them, the way their world is structured is they aren't hostile to Christianity, but they will be very slow to embrace the uniquenesses that Christianity claims, that kind of thing. And being aware of that being in the background is very, very important as you're engaging with someone. I can say, knowing where they're coming from, getting a spiritual GPS reading on them and what's driving them helps you to know how to engage with them about the gospel. Right. And it's a really a fascinating book. I think very timely. Where, where's the best place for people who are interested in reading? Where's the best place to buy it? Is it your website or is it Amazon? Yeah, I don't have a website. So, um, yeah, it's Amazon probably is the easiest way to get it or a Christian bookstore. You could probably order it through there if they don't have it. But there, it, it's it's readily available. It's available both in hardback for, you know, for the for the old of faith and digitally for younger people. So we, you can get it in any shape or form you want. You can get your vanilla ice cream with caramel or with chocolate. And where do you have uh, any social media? If people want to send you an email or reach out to you, where's the best place or you means can, to contact you? You can with? reach out to me at Dallas Seminary. Uh, uh, you know, we're at the Hendricks Center. If you go to the Dallas Seminary website, dts.edu, and look up the Hendricks Center, you can find a whole series of videos that we've put together that deal with some of the themes that are raised here. Or you can write to me at dbach at dts.edu. Gotcha. And again, the title of the book is Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse Pluralistic World by Dr. Daryl L. Bach. Dr. Bach, thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure. All right. Take care.
All right, you still there?